Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 to 24. The world in which you live has been cursed. All humanity lives under a curse. As good and as beautiful as is the world in which we live, and I really enjoy spring, especially as my allergies are starting to subside, which is good, pain and suffering and death are everywhere present. God has pronounced a curse upon this world. It permeates everything. Some things are more affected by the curse than others but nothing has been left untouched. Today we're in the last half of Genesis chapter 3, and it is God's pronouncement of the curse. If someone pronounces a curse upon you, they usually intend to harm you. I mean, who would pronounce a curse upon someone that they intend to bless? But as strange as it may sound, it is in the curse today that we begin to see God's mercy. And it is in the curse itself that the foundations of blessing are laid. So if you would, let's go ahead and read the text in its entirety. And then we will dig in to it piece by piece. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now the extent of the curse falls upon three individuals, Satan, the woman, and the man. Of these three, only the curse upon Satan is final and complete. There is no mercy given to Satan. And there is no hope of future blessing for him. Verses 14 and 15 are where we find God's pronouncement of judgment upon Satan. You see, Satan has deceived, he has led into rebellion the crown of God's creation. Satan was motivated by pride and jealousy and hatred. He wanted the position that Adam had been given, and he thought he was more deserving than Adam. And rather than being happy for Adam, Satan seeks to destroy Adam. He is full of bitter hatred for the apple of God's eye. Think about that. To be full of bitter hatred for the apple of God's eye. And even though we may wonder why God even allowed Satan into the garden in the first place, that's not what God wants us to dwell upon. Instead, he wants us to see that Satan is responsible for his actions, and because of his actions, because they were motivated by pure evil, they will be dealt with. Satan will be punished. But what is more, because Satan has set himself up as an adversary to God, Satan must also be overcome. It is not enough for Satan to be punished. Satan has wrought havoc upon humanity. And the havoc that he has wrought must be reversed. You see, anything less than the reversal of, of, of uh, this havoc would be a victory for Satan. I'll try to illustrate this in a in an example that's somewhat close to me. Some of you have met my brother. He's, he's in a wheelchair. He's been paralyzed since he was 17. He dove into a pond uh, and broke his neck when he was 17 years old, almost drowned, was pulled out, and now he's been in a wheelchair ever since. One brief moment changed everything for my brother. We both attended... Uh, college at Wright State University, and if you know anything about Wright State University, which you don't because you're in the South and it's Midwest, anyway, uh, it is a school that is designed for people with disabilities. And so it's really cool, even though it's in the North, all of the buildings are attached with underground tunnels. So in the wintertime, you can go to class in your shorts. You don't never have to leave any buildings. All the classes are connected. It's really rather fun. But you'll be there, and you will see these guys in wheelchairs just flying down these tunnels. you got to get out of their way. They're just all around. So anyway, 
So we got to meet a lot of people with disabilities at Wright State University. And one of my brother's friends, and also a friend of mine, he also was in a wheelchair, paralyzed from the time I think he was like 18. He was playing football for Pitt University. He was, a, I think, a running back for them. In the prime of his life, he was changing his tire alongside of the road, and he was hit by a drunk driver. And because he was hit by that drunk driver, he was paralyzed for life. Now, in different than my brother's situation, Jim Dolphin, he suffered because of the evil actions of another. Okay? Now, that, that person was punished. Jim received uh, a lot of financial compensation for that. But no amount of punishment upon the one who did the crime can give Jim his legs back. Right? The damage had been done, and there's no going back. Put that in the grand scheme of things. Satan has done damage. It's not enough just to punish him. We continue to feel the effects of his evil actions thousands of years later. God's victory over Satan can only be as he reverses the effects of Satan's actions. Sin has its consequences. These consequences are terrible. Sometimes the sins flow out of us and inflict terrible damage upon others. Sometimes the sins flow out of others and do us terrible damage, or maybe those that we love. And we have to live with those terrible effects throughout the course of our lives. Can't go back. We all must, like Jim Dolphin and my brother, must live with some form of evil that began when Satan first tempted Adam and Eve. We all are dealing with it. But although we must wait long and endure much suffering, God is working to overcome Satan entirely and to reverse entirely the effects of Satan's actions. That's the hope of the gospel. That's that's what we have hope for. That we would again be able to return to a world that is perfect, living with others who are perfect for eternity. What I find to be amazing is that even at the very uh, beginning, immediately after the fall itself, God begins his work of reversing the fall. And he does it through the curse. God's judgment upon Satan is the beginning of that. He pronounces to Satan, you lose. You will be crushed. Now, obviously, and we talked about this last week, he's talking to the serpent, which is a physical animal in the creation. But he's really talking to Satan You understand that? The physical body of the serpent, that member of God's creation, is indeed altered at this time. Whatever the serpent looked like before the fall, 
before this curse, he looks differently now. God will also curse the ground. We're going to see that in a minute. So the serpent's slithering on the ground symbolizes that he will, above every other creature, feel most keenly the curse. You see, everyone is affected by the curse, but no one is more affected by it than the serpent. Now, slithering snakes on the ground is not really the point. I want to stress this to you guys. But a slithering snake on the ground is a visual reminder to us that Satan is being humbled by God. It is not that snakes are satanic. That's not the point. But when you see a snake, you should be reminded that Satan is licking the dust. It is Satan who is being cursed. God is telling him that his future is doomed. He will be humbled. In verse 15, we have what is called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. It is the first announcement to us of the gospel, but strange enough, rather than a promise given to Adam and Eve, it is a promise to the serpent that he will be crushed entirely. You see, your redemption, your being redeemed, is the opposite side of the coin of Satan being crushed. You can't have one without the other. Satan will be fully defeated and overcome. Now God takes the initiative in this. He takes an initiative and acts to make Satan and Eve enemies. Do you see that? I will put, God is the one acting, I will put enmity between Satan and Eve. Now, Satan has always hated Eve. That's not really a new thing. He's, he's hated her from the beginning. But Eve has not always hated Satan. In fact, she listened to Satan. She sided with Satan against God. But here we see that God is going to act in such a way to put hatred and animosity between Eve and her children against Satan. If God doesn't work to do this, there is no salvation. It is so easy to miss this in the text. As long as Eve remains a friend of Satan, she cannot be saved. And God says, I am going to put enmity between her and you. And why we get into the place where this is just about women not liking snakes is just, no. It's not what it's about. James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You could just say, friendship with Satan is enmity with God. Here we have God saying, I am going to make Eve at odds with Satan. 
That's good news. And it's not just Eve, it is Eve and her offspring. And offspring can be taken both singularly and the singular collective. In other words, it can be just one person involved or it can be the whole group involved. Let's start with the offspring of Satan. It's not about physical snakes or the offspring of Satan. That's not what they are. Satan's offspring are those men and women and children who follow Satan in his desire to oppose God. They are the friends of the world. That's who the offspring of Satan are. Now, strangely enough, everyone in this room, everyone in all of the world, begins life as an enemy of God and a friend of Satan. says that to us in Ephesians 2. Paul says, And you were dead in the the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's all who are not saved, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So then how does someone become at odds with Satan when everyone begins as a friend of Satan? Well, that's clear in Ephesians 2 as well. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So in cursing the serpent, God is promising to save Eve's descendants, at least some of them. The offspring of the women in this context are those who have been saved by God's grace, who now, contrary to their initial heart's desire, now have an animosity and an enmity towards Satan. So if you are here today, and you actually say, no, I hate the work of Satan. I hate my old sinful past. I hate those things in the world which are opposed to God. That is a work of grace in your heart. Now, mind you, this is not all expressed in this Genesis 3 passage. It's just the the seeds of this. But that's what's going on. God does this out of sheer grace. If God does not work, we would all simply be on the side of Satan and eventually we would all be destroyed. But even though that this can be taken collectively as the whole, I think it actually also is of one person. One specific offspring. I think this is worked out in Eve with her two sons. It doesn't take too long. We'll get to it in our next sermon about the story of Cain and Abel, so I won't go into the detail here. But it doesn't take too long to realize that Cain is actually following Satan. And that Abel is the one who, by God's grace, is following God. And God allows Cain to kill Abel. He kills, the seed of the serpent kills the seed of the woman in Cain and Abel. 
In fact, as we go throughout the book of Genesis, it really is a, a, a book about the, the two lines. One is a godly line, one is an ungodly line. And that's very helpful for us to see, as long as we don't think that somehow physical generation is what causes the godly line. As long as you don't see that. Now, I know I'm using New Testament language, but John says, listen, if somebody is actually a seed of the woman, if somebody's actually saved, they are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's the only way someone is saved. But let me just state this. One way to think about salvation is that God has now brought you into his army and you are now a part of the war with Satan. And you will have to live it the rest of your life. It's an irreconcilable war. It's one of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And in, in a sense, it's not just a war between me, who hopefully is on the side of uh, uh, the seed of the woman, and those who are outside of that means Satan's uh, seed, but it is actually going on within my soul because I have an old nature and a new nature, and they're at war with one another as well. This will go on until, until Jesus crushes Satan under your feet. In our final hymn today, we are gonna, we're going to talk about Jesus crushing the serpent's head. That is our hope. That is it. And you are a part of it. Jesus crushed him at the cross. We'll talk about that. But it's in the church as we overcome as, through our faith in Christ that we too, even though we're not perfect yet, we too crush Satan. You see, this one seed, this one seed who will bruise the serpent's head is Christ. He is that seed. Satan strikes at Jesus at the cross with the intent of destroying Jesus. But instead of defeating Jesus, he is only able to strike his heel, and at the same time, he, in Christ's death, has been dealt his own death blow. Hebrews 2, that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. <clears throat> Here it is. You know, all of Scripture is, is leading us to that redemption. But right here at the beginning, right as soon as the fall occurs and God is pronouncing the curse, he actually brings the, the first message of the gospel right then. Satan's doom is sure. It is sure because of the cross, but it really became sure right here when God says to Satan, there will be one come and he will crush your head. Let's continue on. God, like I said, the, the, the curse upon Satan is the only complete and final and 
irrevocable curse that occurs. The rest of this cursing actually is mixed with blessing. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Every time a woman gives birth to a child, she is reminded of the curse. But this is not a statement about just having physical pains in childbearing. Just as the snake slithering on the ground is a reminder of a spiritual lesson, so the physical pains of childbearing is a reminder of spiritual struggle. You see, prior to the fall, prior to the curse, raising up a godly child was simple and easy. It would almost be natural. Had sin not come into the world, we could have seen the population of the world, and every child would be godly, things would be wonderful, it would be great. Without pain. But now, the raising of a godly seed would be full of pain. What do you think was more painful to Eve? Birthing Cain or watching Cain kill Abel? How about watching Cain turn away from the Lord? Eve must endure this pain as she bears and raises children. And it's not simply that that you're, you're watching people maybe turn away from the Lord and the pain of that or watching them do evil things, but then to see someone who is following the Lord, like Abel, to see him suffer at the hands of someone who's not following the Lord, that too is painful. Think about Mary. What pain did she endure as she watched Jesus hang on the cross? The pains of childbearing is much more than just the physical pains of birth. And God doesn't sugarcoat that. He says, this is the reality. This is where we are. But it's easy to miss the incredible mercy of God in this. When you fail someone in a big way, most of the time you lose the privilege of having responsibility. Those who are disappointed with you take away that responsibility. I remember when I was first in, in college, I was working construction, and I was on a construction crew, and the crew leader, um, there's maybe three or four of us, and we were working on this job. The, the boss had shown him the plans, told him what to do, and he left. We had built a, uh, the second story of the house is what we were framing up, and may not you know, mean a whole lot to you, but most homes you do with two-by-four walls, but we were, this house we were making two-by-six walls. And those two-by-six walls were there to make greater room for insulation, sound barriers, all that kind of stuff. Well, the, the uh, crew leader missed the two-by-six. <laughs> and so he made a whole story of the house with the wrong walls. Now, you can imagine, when the boss came back that afternoon, he was not happy. I've never, he was a nice man, a good man. <laughs> he was... I I was just thankful that I was not the one reading the blueprint. (laughs) And he chewed him out, and we worked all day dismantling the house again. 
But he gave that crew leader the responsibility to build the next story of the house. He didn't take it away from him. Now that's a small example. Think about Eve taking the responsibility that she has and failing big time, and God still says, you will be given the blessing of bearing and raising children. Yeah, there's a curse. Yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Your heart will break in this, but it's, I'm still giving it to you. Same thing true of the husband-wife relationship. God informs the woman that her relationship with her husband will be one of struggle. Before the fall, man and woman being equal, although be given different roles, one of headship, one of following and supporting and helping in that headship, they were equal, they would have harmony with one another in fulfilling that task. No longer. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The woman will have a desire to be in the place of the husband. That's the point. And man, in his position of authority, will abuse that authority to dominate the woman. This is clear in Genesis 4-7. Flip over there for a second. The exact same language is used. Cain is being uh, struggling with inner desires within him. And God says to him that sin, this is the end of verse 7, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Same language. He's basically saying there's going to be this, this contrary desire within you that is actually trying to eat you up and consume you, and you must conquer it and destroy it. And that's what God is saying that's happening in Adam in the marriage relationship. Rather than being harmony, rather than being love and oneness, there is a constant struggle between the husband and wife. And wives must fight against the desire to usurp the position of authority given to the husband, and husbands must fight against the desire to dominate their wives. You see, this also has redemptive purpose. He said, I mean, what? It sounds terrible. Marriage is going to be a bummer. But we see in this that God is training his children to destroy that which, which caused the problem in the first place. Acceptance of God's plan rather than doing things your own way. Our world sees God's plan of marriage as evil. As Christians, it is right for us to see the misuse of God's plan, his, 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 these roles, to see that misuse as evil, but not the plan itself. Moving on, we get to the curse of, of God upon man. And really, God's curse upon man is really his curse of the ground. God basically says the ground is not going to do for it what you want it to do. You're going to have frustrating work throughout your life, and then you're going to die. Thanks. Graduates, that's a, that'll be a good graduation sermon, right, to the message. Oh, you've graduated. You're going to work the rest of your life, and you're going to die. Verse 
Before the fall, man would work and his efforts would produce good fruit. The creation, the land in particular, would respond wonderfully to man's efforts. There would be no futility. But after the curse, this limited enjoyment, we all have some limited enjoyment of this world, would be mixed with pain, and you shall only eat of this this, this land with pain, it says. And I want to stress this to us as Americans, because Americans hear this this way. Conquering the world and gaining true fruitfulness will be more difficult, but you can do it. That's the message of our world. Have enough blood, sweat, and tears, and you can gain it. And God says, no, you will not. Even in an advanced society where we produce far more abundantly than we need, that which we produce is not able to take away the curse. We're still dying. And no amount of eating organic foods will fix it. I'm not against organic foods. Just saying it won't fix the problem. The serpent was humiliated by having to lick the dust. Now man suffers his own humiliation. He will return to the same dust. And at first it is very difficult to see how can you turn this into a blessing? Why is this a good thing? If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you, you like it's just depressing. And most people don't even want to read the book of Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, it's so depressing they just want to leave it behind. But the pain and frustration and futility are indeed a blessing that God uses for your redemption. How many of you came to know Jesus Christ in the happiest time of your life? How many of you were experiencing life to the full and then said, Oh, I think I want Jesus. Most of us, I won't say all because I don't know everybody, were brought to see Jesus and their need of him through the suffering and difficulties and the emptiness of life. Jesus said that it is the sick who need a doctor, not the well. Pain is a gift. It's not that we should seek pain, not that we should love pain. It is a great evil, just like death is a great evil. But God is merciful and giving you futility and pain and even death because you begin to look to salvation in another world. Adam gets this. He understands it. In verse 20, he calls his name Eve, the mother of all the living. Now, if he didn't get these promises, here's some of the names that I would say that he might have given her. Mara, which means bitterness. Thanks a lot, Eve. Or possibly, she through whom sin and death entered the world. I don't know what that would be in the Hebrew, but that would be the name, right? Adam calls her the mother of all the living. God also gives garments of skins to clothe Adam and Eve. They had tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. 
It's not just that the fig leaves shriveled up and weren't able to cover them. Again, it is a symbol showing us that your own efforts to cover your sin will never make it. But in God's mercy, and we're going to see it here in the communion meal in just a little bit, in God's mercy, he provides coverings for you to cover your nakedness and your shame. Finally, verses 22 and 20 through 24, we've already seen how pain and futility can be a blessing that leads us to Christ. But now we see that death itself, even though it is the last and greatest enemy, is also the result of God's mercy to us. Notice in these verses, God kicks them out of the garden and he puts um, cherubim there, angelic beings, with a flaming sword, which is his presence, and he says, you cannot get into the garden because I do not want you eating of the tree of life. You see, if Adam and Eve could partake of the tree of life, not only physically would they live forever, but their souls would continue on forever as well. And it is only through death that they can experience salvation. So you might think, oh, it's bad that he keeps them out of the the tree of life. But no, it's good because if they were to partake of that, they could not die. And if they could not die, they could not be saved. Because the only way to deal with the corruption that has occurred in your heart is to be crucified with Christ. To be killed. It is the corruption of the heart that must be overcome. That's the issue. And God will not let people back into his garden to partake of the tree of life until he has dealt with the corruption of the heart. And that's redemption. We are crucified with Christ when indeed by God's Spirit he comes into your heart and he severs you from your old nature and he gives you a new heart. Everything we see up here in this verse. And he says to you, you are a new creation. You will not perfectly love God until you die physically. The Bible says that you will be made perfect in holiness. But that was begun the day that you were converted to Christ. Death is a great mercy. The Garden of Eden symbolizes the temple. Or I should say the temple symbolizes Garden of Eden. Notice that the gate to the garden is in the east. If you know the way that they situated the temple, it was turned so that it was facing east. The gates of the temple were the east. Guess what was over the the ark? Cherubim. The shining glory of God, protecting, protecting his holiness. And only through the blood of Christ is the curtain torn and our way into the Holy of Holies occurs. That's all pictured here, right in the garden. After the fall. So how do we apply this text? Number one, you need to remember that you live in a sin-cursed world. It is futile. And every time I, I teach this, but every time I sin, I am choosing this world over the next. Secondly, Jesus Christ crushed the head of Satan. You are at war with him. And will be until the end. Thirdly, 
recognize, when I, I, I didn't go into this, I should have gone a little bit, but recognize that the, the heart of the problem is that you want to rule your life and make decisions of right and wrong for yourself rather than submit to God. That's really the problem. Recognize that. Repent of it when you find yourself ruling your life rather than submitting to God. Ask Jesus to give you a new heart that hates Satan and wars against him. And lastly, when you experience pain and suffering in this life, even if it's at the hand of other Christians, turn to Jesus Christ. He alone is the hope of the resurrection. He alone is the one who's able to get you back into the garden where you can experience true life. Only in Jesus Christ can we look back upon this curse and see blessing. If you're apart from Christ, there's only, it's not a good, it's curse. But if you know Jesus Christ, even in the curse, there is blessing. Amen. Elders, if you would, please find your way forward. <clears throat> Danny, why don't you come up with them, too? Do they need a fourth? They can do it with three. They can do fine, okay. Okay.